Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. Do you ever wonder why you like sad music? Or why you react so intensely to music, art and nature? And is there something powerful about embracing bittersweet moments and feelings? Well, joining me in the studio today to discuss why we should embrace bittersweet moments and how sorrow and longing can actually make us whole is Susan Kane, the author of the award-winning book Quiet and the new book Bittersweet. Her TED Talk has also been viewed over 40 million times. In Bittersweet, Susan shows how a bittersweet state of mind is the quiet force that helps us transcend our personal and collective pain. If we don't acknowledge our own heartache, she says, we can end up inflicting it on others via abuse, domination or neglect. But if we realize that all what all humans know or will know is loss and suffering, we can turn towards one another. Let's begin. Susan Kane, what an honor to interview you. I'm really, really looking forward to this interview. Your work is phenomenal. You have been watched, your TED Talks have been watched by millions globally, and I can totally understand why. You have an incredible ability to tune in to talking about things that people don't like talking about, <laughs> and you have a beautiful <laughs> way of handling it, and I'm so honored to have you in the studio with me today, so thank you so much. Oh my goodness, thank you so much to for to you for having me, and big hello to all your listeners out there. Well, thank you so much. Well, you've just, you've written a lot of books and you have a great backstory as starting off as a lawyer and then landing up writing very deep books. And your most recent one is Bittersweet and How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. So would you mind just starting with a little bit of your journey, how you were playing something that caught my attention is that you were playing some music in law school and they said one of your, one of your student colleagues, contemporaries, I should say, commented why you're playing funeral music and you commented back uh, I'm just summarizing your comments about how it make you it made you feel a level of joy even though it was sad music and that caught caught my attention and I'm paraphrasing obviously you can tell it much better but that fascinated me and how you journeyed from there to when you didn't make partner and how you left and how you followed your childhood dream it's just a great story of how you got to where you are today so I'd love to hear you tell your story yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, maybe I'll start by just saying I had wanted to be a writer since I was four years old. But like so many people, kind of thought when I was in college, well, I don't really know how good I am at this and I need to make a living and it's impossible to make a living as a writer. So I ended up going to law school and, and found myself kind of like really intellectually captivated by all the ideas that I found there. So I ended up having this career in corporate law for almost 10 years. Well, I guess it was like about seven years. So, you know, the majority of a decade. And during that time, I kind of, I got really into it and kind of forgot all about my writing dreams until the day that a one of the senior partners came into my office and said, we're not actually making you partner this year. It was the, the year I was supposed to be put up for a partner. He said, that's not happening. And I burst into tears because it felt to me like a decade of dreams and mm. ambitions had suddenly crumbled into nothing. Yeah. But I also kind of simultaneously asked to take a leave of absence and left the firm three hours later. And almost instantly remembered that I had always wanted to be writing. And I think it was literally that night I started writing just like a random essay. I had just seen the movie Legally Blonde and I, I started writing <laughs> my thoughts about that movie. And I kind of kept on writing from there and signed up for a class in creative nonfiction writing at NYU. And I remember that that was like a few weeks later. And I remember sitting in that class on the very first day and feeling this sense of having come to where I was supposed to be and still never dreaming I'd ever be able to make a living at it. But I, I did have this epiphany feeling of like, this is what I have to center my life around. Like, you know, even if I never can make a living, this is what I need to be doing. And 
I haven't really looked back from there. So I do think of that moment when the law firm kind of set me free as one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me, (laughs) even though it didn't feel like it at the time. Yeah. And and we could talk about the sad songs and stuff too, which led to my most recent book. But I guess that's the super thumbnail sketch of my journey (laughs) from law to writing. There's so much more to say, but that's kind of the overview of it. Well, let's transition over to the sad music in terms of what you've actually, in your book, you talk about, you actually ask the questions or you make the statements. If you ever wondered why you like sad music, or if you ever find comfort or inspiration in a rainy day, or if you react intensely to music, art, nature, and beauty, then you probably identify with a bittersweet state of mind. So maybe that's a great little segue from the funeral music comment to why you wrote this book and the importance of this book. Yeah. So I had always had this feeling my entire life, as far back as I could remember. I mean, I I love music in general, but there's just this feeling that you listen to a Moonlight Sonata or, you know, Mm -hmm. more recently a song by Adele or whoever it is who really gets you. For me, it's Leonard Cohen above all. And you, I'm going to say we, because I've since found out this is true of so many people. We listen to that kind of music and there is a sense of mere ecstasy that can take some of Mm us. And I couldn't figure out what the heck could be going on with that. Like, why should it be that something so ostensibly sad could lead to to these ecstatic feelings? And, And when I thought more deeply about what the feelings were, they were like, a sense of like profound connection with the musician, with all the other people who were responding to the music, the way that that I was. Just this, I can only describe it as a, a tidal wave of love. That That's what it feels mm-hmm. like. And I just wanted to figure out what was behind all that. And there, in some ways, that was kind of like a narrow question of why do, why do so many of us appreciate sad music, but I had this suspicion behind it all that it was a much deeper and more and bigger and more universal and profound question that than merely answering that one that mm. that, that one uh, mystery. And so that's what set me off to writing Bittersweet. And it became one of my labors of love. I worked on it for almost a decade and it really did solve many of my life mysteries. Do your financial goals feel out of reach? They don't have to be. With a Chimes Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can start building credit with your own money through on-time payments and small everyday purchases like groceries, streaming and gas. Members see an increase of 30 points to their credit scores on average. Chime reports your payments to the major credit bureaus to help you build credit over time all with no annual fees, large security deposits, or credit checks to apply. Start making your financial dreams a reality with Chime. Signing up only takes two minutes and doesn't affect your credit score. Get started at chime.com forward slash Dr. Leaf. That's chime.com forward slash Dr. Leaf. The Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card is issued by Stride Bank NA pursuant to a license from Visa USA. Chime checking account and $200 qualifying direct deposit required to apply for the secured Chime. Credit Builder Visa credit card based on a study conducted by Experian. Credit Builder members observed an average of 30 points. FICO score, 8 increases over 8 months with regular on-time payments. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply, except at Money Pass ATMs in a 7-Eleven or any AllPoint or Visa Plus Alliance ATM. The link and details will be in the show notes. Oh, that's amazing. That's beautiful. As a writer myself, it's beautiful when you can. That's, I think I think most authors, we're trying to solve something that we're trying to understand in our life, and it's a wonderful way of doing that. You talk a lot about the concept of epigenetics and the, and inherited grief, and you are Jewish and you come from you know background of inherited grief, and you also touch on the concept of how our society almost has gone through these changes that have taken us into very positive. We've got to be positive all the time and suppress, kind of suppress our feelings. You explain it beautifully. Can you maybe just explain, talk a little bit about that concept of how? We have moved, almost moved away from embracing the sadness of life and understanding 
it's okay to talk about grief and and the, 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 the sort of impermanence of life and death and all these that this and the surety of death and how did how you've dealt with it and how you see it has changed over over time and what we should be doing about that now yeah i mean so inherited grief specifically is it's the idea that we all of us we carry around well, we, we we carry around our own griefs, right? Of mm-hmm. of losses or pains that have happened to us during our lifetime, and you could say that there's a a primary grief with which we enter this world. I mean, babies enter the world crying, and we can talk about what that means because mm-hmm. I I believe it means a lot more than than we think about. So so we're all carrying that around from our own experiences, but what we don't pay as much attention to is that we're also carrying the griefs of our parents and of our ancestors Mm -hmm. and those griefs affect us too. And when you think about it, we kind of know this, we know it from a cultural and a familial point of view, right? Like you, you know, you take on emotional patterns and ways of reacting that you, that were modeled by your parents or your grandparents, and those become part of your normal ways of reacting. And and so that's fascinating and important in and of itself. There's another aspect to it that has emerged recently that I wrote about in Bittersweet that I, I just found fascinating. And it's the idea of the genetic profile that we bring into this world. And there's emerging evidence that when our ancestors went through any kind of grief or trauma, that that could have changed their genetic profile in such a way that we inherited it in our own genes. So it's not mm-hmm. only a question of what behaviors did we observe as children. It's it's a question of the very genetic profile with which we entered this world. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and I talked in the book about how this has started to be documented in the children, grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm who have different genetic profiles from, from, from other Jewish children and grandchildren. But then it's also studied like in mice in, in just these, you kind of, in unbelievable ways. Like there was one experiment where the researchers took traumatized male mice. And when mice are traumatized, they, they have a certain behavioral profile. Like they, they act out in a certain way. Okay, so they took these male mice who were traumatized they mated them with female mice who were not. And then they removed the, mice, the traumatized mice from the cages completely. And what they found is that the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren, they, they went for six generations. They had the same traumatized behaviors as their male ancestor, even though no one in that whole line had ever been exposed to that traumatized mouse. And that was just amazing to me. And yeah. I think it explains so much for so it many does. of us. I agree with you so much, Susan. A lot of the work and research that I've been doing for nearly three and a half decades now is looking at you know just the source and origin of, of how we experience things. And that there's so much evidence of how we carry through these genetic patterns and they're dormant, but they get activated by nurturing. So we, we can't as... Sometimes we're showing up in, in ways, and you do talk about this too, and we don't realize that that's yes, it's not it's it's exclusive to us, but actually it's not so exclusive because there's these patterns that have come down through the generations and acted by activated by our nurturing. So it's something we definitely do have to consider, which and it's fascinating. It helps, I think, it helps people to understand a lot more when they're trying to understand why am I doing this or why am I feeling this or why am I acting in a certain way and seeing life in a certain way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think what's interesting too is like once you become aware of it, so Rachel Yehuda, she's one of the pioneers. She, she's a researcher at Columbia and she's one of the pioneers mm-hmm. in this field. And she talks about how she worried at the beginning that people would receive this information as disempowering, you know, as a feeling mm. of like, oh, there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah, I, I came into the world with this particular profile. I don't think that needs to be true. I think it can be incredibly liberating for a couple of reasons. I mean, and one of them is that, I mean, as as you know so well, our brains are 
neuroplastic. And so mm-hmm. just as our brains can, and genetic profiles have been transformed by trauma, so, tr- so too can they be transformed by healing. And so understanding this and then going through whatever the right healing process is for you is incredibly empowering. And I also think there's a way in which we can grow and cultivate a a healthier relationship with our ancestors. So like when I have thought, had thought previously of my ancestors, I felt a tremendous sense of sorrow and grief for them and pain Mm -hmm. for them because I knew, you know, what their fates had been. But I think there's a way of like simultaneously sending love and honor back to your ancestors or to your parents who have gone through whatever they went through, mm. you know, sending, sending love and sympathy back to them and honor back to them while also realizing that your own life is yours to live and that they would want you to live your own mm. life with freedom and independence. And that if you, if you have any guilt about that, to think for those of us who are parents or have children in our lives, how how deeply we wish for our children yeah. to live free and unencumbered lives. And that's what our ancestors wish for us. And I think that's tremendously liberating. I love that. That's really beautiful. And I cannot agree more with that thinking. I think it's beautiful that it can work both ways. And so true about the epigenetic factor that we it comes, they always explain it, Susan, is it comes through dormant sealed up and it's our nurturing that activates it's not the it's it's, so the genetic profile it's not the genes that change the actual uh, the actual switching on and off and by our nurturing and how we see ourselves and and manage our mind and go through mind management and go through all the different experiences of life and understand things so we can actually change how that plays out into our own current lives and into the future and in doing that you as you so beautifully explain you're sending back love back to your source and there's healing that goes in both directions because our spiritual nature is beyond space and time. So I may be getting into deep stuff here, but it's really, it's very real as well. And oh, it's yeah. so, so well that it, it's so good that, that it's being spoken about and that these deep things. I would love to talk a little bit about the second part of my question is just how things have changed historically over time and the, the positivity movement and you know, you, you you mention a couple of people. You talk about James. You, everyone talks about James, and you talk about uh, Norman Vincent Peale and Think and Grow Rich, and you know all the power of positive thinking and all these this how you know, this toxic positivity. It, we're so aware of it now, but how it's changed our culture and how it's taken us away from some of the deepest things of experiencing grief and experiencing the ups and downs of life, which are so important for our growth as humans. We've almost got the message that. If you're feeling sad, and this is something all the time I'm talking about on this podcast, if you whatever emotions you feel, no emotions are bad, they're all giving you information and telling you something. So grief and sadness are part of your whole growth and you as a person and developing your character and all this kind of stuff that we instinctively know. But in society, it's as soon as you feel sadness or for a certain amount of time, suddenly you're labeled and you have a mental illness and or, you know that's going down one trail or you're not thinking you got to replace with positive thoughts and can you speak a little bit to what's happened and how we should address this yeah absolutely so if you look at all the world's religions and all the world's wisdom traditions i don't think there's a sim a single one that doesn't place sadness at center stage mm-hmm. or suffering or loss at center stage so um, good. Mm. Precisely because that is what it is to be human, right? And and by the way, what all the wisdom traditions and religious traditions also do mm-hmm. is is they place like indescribable joy and beauty at center stage. And we forget exactly. that too. We're, yeah. we're we're like looking for happiness, and that's not quite the same thing mm-hmm. as kind of this sublime beauty that also characterizes our world. So I trust the religions and the wisdom traditions on this. And they're telling us that there's something that this that these aspects are kind of the most profound centers of the human condition mm-hmm. and the different religions offer different responses to this question of sorrow and longing and disappointment and and so on but they all know that it's a fundamental part of us and the mystical traditions by the way 
talk about sorrow and longing as being literally the pathway to get you closer to the divine. And whether you're a believer or an atheist or somewhere in between, that's a profound bit of advice. I mean, because whether you call it the the divine divinity per se, or whether you call it, you know, love or beauty or whatever it is for you, the fact is that sorrow can take you closer to get there. And yet, and yet, we have lived in a culture, especially over the last couple hundred years, like in the 19th century, what started Mm -hmm. to happen is that as we became more focused on kind of like an organized business culture, the overwhelming question became, are you a success at business or are you a failure? And the very word loser has kind of... the, the, the question was always like, if, if you were somebody who lost, is it because you were because of bad luck or is it because there was something in your nature that made you a loser, mm. quote, a quote loser? And increasingly the answer became, it was something fundamental in you, something in mm. your nature. So you had to strive more and more and more to distance yourself from anything that had to do with loss or sorrow mm-hmm. because that made you a failure it made you a loser as opposed to a human being who like all other human beings experiences loss yeah and it also closed off i mean loss can and sorrow can be these incredible bridges from one human to the next because we all experience it so it's a way of loving each other to embrace each other in those moments but it closed off those bridges as this culture developed. And that's where we are right now. Yeah. Like you can trace this growth, how this happened through the 19th and 20th centuries, but mm-hmm. here we are in the 21st century and, and these attitudes are very entrenched. I would say until like in the last few years, you we are starting to see a kind of opening up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think people know now, like between the pandemic and between the, the soaring rates of anxiety and depression and all these other indicators. I, I think people are starting to realize how much this is part of humanity and that it's something we can't look away from. So it's early days, but, but attitudes are softening. I totally agree with you. You know, it's almost like people are conflicted because if you're really tuning to who you are at your depth, you're going to, you're going to experience that sorrow as a connection to the divine and you're going to see that there's more in you know, these that you've got to go through these emotions and there's an instinctive awareness of this but society's telling us something else and we're absorbing our cultural mindset the zeitgeist whatever you want to call it into how into our unconscious minds and it's driving us 95 percent of what we're absorbing is we're not even aware of and that, that's driving how we function but yes there is a shift from this conflict that's been created by what society is telling us now through the 19th, 20th, 21st century in terms of how to embrace every aspect of our humanity to turning it into this very, you know, you've got to be positive all the time and you've got to think and mind over matter. It's all been kind of misinterpreted and that's created tremendous conflict because at our core we realize that there's something wrong with us. It isn't wrong to see the joy but you've also got to see the sadness so you know i love the i love how you've used the concept of bittersweet because it really does help us identify this conflict and you're so right i interview so many people around the world and so many experts and and there is definitely a shift in the last couple of years i have noticed for sure that there's much greater tendency to move towards the embracing of all of our humanity in in how we function and i love that and i also love how you mentioned neuroplasticity it was one of the areas i worked on back in the 80s when they told us the brain couldn't couldn't change but you're, you're always right. changing and and you know that's that's so, so hopeful that yes in despite inherited trauma despite what culture has and what we are immersion in culture we as humans can stand back and observe this and we can change we can rewire our mind brain body connection which is so beautiful you love, there's a special poem, a poem that you love. And just before we started, we were going to, I wanted to speak about that. Can you, do you have that poem in front of you by Rumi? I want, I, I wanted you to maybe just read it. If you don't just talk about it, because it's beautiful, kind of encapsulates what we've been talking about now. 
Oh yeah. Well, it's funny. I have I have an excerpt of that poem in front of me because it's taped up to my oh, maybe you my lamp maybe one of your right on my desk. Yeah, yeah. So I'll I'll describe the whole poem and then I can read the excerpt. The poem is called "Love Dogs," and he's talking in this poem about a man who is praying to Allah. And I, I should go back and say so. Rumi Jalala. Jalal al-Din Rumi, he is a 12th century Sufi poet. Sufism is the mystical branch of Islam. And he just produced like reams and reams of ecstatic poetry. And he has somehow become the best-selling poet, I believe, in the United States today. Okay. Amazing. I know. So this particular poem is about a man who is praying to Allah. And then a cynic comes along and asks him, why are you praying? Have you ever gotten an answer back? And the man was like, no, actually, I never have gotten an answer. You know, he thinks about it. And so he stops praying and he falls asleep. And while he's asleep, he is visited by Hitter, who is the guide of souls. And he explains to Hitter why he stopped praying. And what Hitter says to him is this. He says, and, and and remember the reason he's give, the reason the man is giving for stopping praying is that he's never gotten an answer back. So what Hitter mm-hmm. says is, this longing you express is the return message. The grief you cry out from is what draws you toward union. Your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. Mm-hmm. And so, it's this idea that we Beautiful. were just talking about a few minutes ago. You know that this mist. The, the idea of all the mystics that the very part of your soul that is full of longing and full of sorrow and that comes into this world in tears is because of a sense of being separated from everything that is best in us. I mean, separated from divinity and separated from our best selves, from unconditional love, from truth, from beauty. And we, all of us, long for those states. So it really is our best selves. Like we, we know what our best selves look mm-hmm. like. And every so often we get a glimpse of it. And, and that's why, you know, those moments where you're watching a soccer match and you see something unbelievable on the field and everybody's like, you know, delirious to, to mm-hmm. watch it. Or you see Simone Biles doing something amazing on the, it, with her gymnastics, or you see mm-hmm. like a beautiful painting that brings you to tears. We're crying at those moments because we're getting a glimpse of that place. We're getting the return message. Like our longing for a moment is met by the return message that Rumi is talking about. So it's our very best selves that our culture is telling us turn away from. And and it's such bad advice because the opposite is what we should be doing. Absolutely, Susan. You're so right. And that's why I'm so glad that you that's why I wanted to bring this poem up because I just think it really encapsulates what you're saying and what we should be doing. And, you know, we see in our rising rates of people battling with mental health issues. And, you know, obviously there's so many reasons why that has happened. You know, it's been a mishandled environment situation from the beginning, I believe. Mental health from it has a history of really bad management. But I think a huge part of it is what you're talking about, that we as humans need to be actually allowed to embrace our humanity and all the aspects of our humanity and all the elements of our humanity. And this podcast is called Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. And one of the things I tell everyone, it's okay to be a mess because it's in that mess that we find ourselves and we find our character and our being and all these things that that you've just, you know, so beautifully expressed with as you read that poem and, and explained Rumi's great, you know, some of his great work. And it's just, look, it's a bestseller today. That's amazing. I mean, all these years later, People are finding that instinctive, in deep depth inside of us in this kind of writing. Absolutely, and like all of Ruby's poetry, or so much of it, is on this theme. You know, he he, he says, "Be thirsty, be thirsty." Love that. That's the idea. I think it's a big part of our mental health healing is to be okay with the uncertainty, to be okay with the sadness, instead of thinking I'm feeling sad. Mm-hmm. There's something wrong with me. If you've been following my podcast for a while now, you know that I give a lot of advice for better mental and physical health. But my advice is only as good as your willpower to do something with it. 
So, if you're stuck on not having the willpower or mental energy to follow through on new goals and commitments you want in your life, then you need to try Qualia Mind. Our sponsor Neurohacker combines 28 of the most research-backed nootropic ingredients on earth into the ultimate brain fuel formula, Qualia Mind. And it's been changing people's lives for years now. For help with my daily mental performance and help supporting my long-term brain health, I think Qualia Mind is indispensable. It's so cool to take a product where you don't have to wonder if it's working because I noticed the difference in just days to get my focus, my mood, my memory and my willpower to get things done. I also love that the formula is non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free and the ingredients are meant to complement one another, factoring in each ingredient's effect on supporting mental clarity. And it's also backed by 100-day money-back guarantee, so you have almost three months to try Qualia Mind at no financial risk and decide for yourself. See what the best brain formula on earth can do for your mindset. Go to neurohacker.com forward slash Dr. Leaf for $100 off. That's only $59 a bottle. And as a listener of cleaning up the mental mess, use the code Dr. Leaf at checkout for an extra 15% off your first purchase. That's neurohacker.com forward slash Dr. Leaf to try Qualia Mind with the code Dr. Leaf to experience life-changing mental performance. The link and details will be in the show notes. So I notice that you talk about the inside out movie and how you related that as this, you know, a beautiful way of understanding what you talk about in bittersweet. And I really related to that because I've also done a little bit of talking around that movie. So can can we can do you mind, Susan, to talk a little bit about how you see inside out that movie, which I'm sure so many people have seen. And if you haven't, I strongly recommend that you go see it. But can you talk about how that the impression that that movie made on you, just how you view that movie in terms of but in terms of bittersweet. Yeah, absolutely. So the movie, if your listeners haven't seen it, yeah. is about the emotions of an 11-year-old girl named Riley. And it's mm-hmm. like, and, and, and the emotions, her emotions are the central characters of the movie. So the whole mm-hmm. movie is like focused up in her brain where the emotions are running around with each other. And it's really fascinating because, I mean, I, I had the chance to interview Pete Docter, the great, Pixar director for the book who made this movie. And he was telling me how he had to pick, and it was a creative thing, he had to pick one or two emotions to be the central ones, the the main protagonists for the movie. And Mm -hmm. at first he picked just joy and fear. And then he realized when he was like three years into making the movie that it wasn't working, he like had a real crisis of confidence and started thinking the movie was a disaster. And he started kind of spinning out and thinking I might just lose my entire career. Like every success I've had so far has been a fluke and this one's a disaster and like, I'm going to lose my job. And and he, he became really sad about it. And what he realized with that sadness was that what he was most mournful of was that he was going to lose his connections with all his beloved colleagues. So the sadness mm-hmm. made him realize his the strength of his connections mm. to people and it was with that that he realized that he needed to place the emotion of sadness at the center of the movie and because we live in the culture that we were just talking yeah. about he expected the executive team at Pixar to think that was a really stupid idea <laughs> and he had to lobby them to accept it but they eventually did And sadness became kind of the hero of the movie. So it was like an incredibly bold and insightful Mm -hmm. move that he made. And it's a brilliant movie and it did so well. I will say the one one feeling I have about it, if you remember the movie, is that sadness is depicted in the movie as being like literally she's the color blue and she's kind of... She's extremely unfashionable looking, I guess is the best way to say it. Kind of dowdy looking. Unappealing. 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 She's unappealing. (laughs) Yeah, that's the best way to put it. She's unappealing. And I didn't think it needed to, she didn't need to be depicted that way. And in fact, you know, if you look at the, the 19th century tradition of romanticism in Europe, sorrow is often traditionally depicted as something much more appealing and romantic. 
So it wasn't a necessary choice. And I don't think it was a useful choice in terms of the kinds of things we're talking about. But putting that aside, it was like a brilliant movie and a brilliant decision on his part to make Sadness the hero. I love that too. And I totally agree with you. That is something because it made it very unappealing. And when something's unappealing, then it's almost like that was a bit of their, 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 their cultural little foot in the door in the movie. I think when they when they made her the character of sadness unappealing, when it's actually a very appealing, as you said, in, in the 19th century and earlier, it was not depicted, sadness was not depicted like that. And it's a changing view of sadness and transitioning from, or kind of segueing from that, you know, let's talk about grief because people, you know, there's this whole thing around grief. I, you you know about this, and pe- my listeners know about this. They'd be told that grief goes through stages, but I've done interviewed people around this and speak about this, that grief isn't so fixed, and it isn't actually a fixed, organized, you do this, 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 and go through these particular stages. It's up and down and back and forth and so different for each person and all over the place, and sometimes you have to wait before you can process. And But it's still like there's this philosophy in psychology and psychiatry that you have to deal with it now and if you don't it's going to cause all kinds of problems but it's such an individualistic thing and it's such a big thing and it's such a creative thing too can you talk about grief because I think you really do handle this beautifully and you have a lot of reasons with your epigenetic side the inherited grief from your ancestors and you lost both your father and your brother in COVID which I'm really sorry I'm so sorry you went through that but you have a very beautiful way of helping people process grief. I was very impressed with that. So would you mind talking around that? Oh, sure. Thank you. I mean, there's so much to say here. I know so there is. Much. So, <laughs> so, so if that's all we still handle today, that's great because this is a big one. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, I don't know. I mean, what one of I, I thought one of the best ways of thinking about grief that I came across actually comes from the writer Nora Mac, McInerney who talks about how when she lost her husband as a young woman, she kept getting the advice to move on. Mm -hmm. And she started surveying other people who had been through bereavements and asking them what they most hated about what people Mm -hmm. would tell them or say to them. And that was it. Like Mm. people did not want to be told to move on. And so she came up with this distinction between the idea of moving on and moving forward. And I think that's a profound distinction because moving on is, yeah, it's like saying you, you've got to bury this. You've got to get past this pace, Mm -hmm. pace the smile on your face and, you know, march on as opposed to moving forward, which is your life is still going to continue, but you can carry with you forever. The person who you've lost, you don't have to lose them. Like the person you are today is forever changed because of the love you had for them and the love that mm. they had for you and their impact on you. And so you move forward with them as opposed to having to leave them behind. And I think that's a completely different outlook totally as different. to what grief can be. Stress is part of life, something we all experience. And thankfully, there are ways we can make stress work for us instead of against us which includes finding ways to manage our stress response. On episode 469 of my podcast, I talked about a great way to do this through toning the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve plays an important role in how we manage stress and build up our mental resilience. As an integral part of our nervous system and stress response, it can help us feel calmer and think more clearly in challenging situations. One way I tone my vagus nerve to better manage stress is using Sensate's novel patented technology. This device, paired with the sessions in the Sensate companion app, sends infrasonic waves through the chest to reach the vagus nerve that sits deep in the core of our nervous system. By speaking to our body's command center, Sensate is designed to help us control how we choose to respond to all the positive and negative things that we experience each day, which in turn helps us reset our sleep schedules, soothe stress and anxiety, decrease inflammation, and improve mood by tapping into the phenomenon of vibrations and sound through bone conduction. As a tool in my mental health toolkit, Sensate has been a true game changer. I personally use it daily for 10 minutes before I start my mind management routine. I have felt that it helps support my heart rate variability, sleeping habits, stress management, mental and emotional resilience. 
If you're struggling with stress and anxiety, Sensate is here to help you. You can save 10% off your Sensate order with my code, Dr. Leaf, at getsensate.com. Just head to getsensate.com and enter the code Dr. Leaf at checkout to start feeling less overwhelmed today. The link and details will be in the show notes. It's beautiful. You talk about your dad with the orchids. Yes, it's a perfect example, really. So my father, like when when he died, I started thinking about like what are the things he taught me, what are the inheritances I have from him. And one of the main things he taught me by example, he never like wagged his finger at me and <laughs> lectured about this, but he taught me to care like beyond all reason about beauty. And he did this in a thousand different ways, you know, so he developed this love for orchids and he built a greenhouse full of orchids in our basement. So, because which was the only place he had available to put it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it wasn't for show. No one could really see it, except if you yeah. went all the way down into the basement, you would like gaze at the orchids, which is what he did every night. He would go and tend to them. And like, it was something he did for no other reason than this simple awe Beautiful. at their beauty. And I could give you, you know, 10 other examples of ways in which he lived his life this way. And he was the one who taught me to love music the way I do. He was playing Beethoven for me when I was three years old. And the night that he died, I found myself listening to the, some of the music that he had exposed me to. And it was like, I was looking for him in the music and I didn't find him there. But what you realize is that what I realized is that connecting with that which you find most beautiful, it's like you're drinking from the same river that gave you love in the first place. Like it all comes from the same place. The love Mm -hmm. you have for your parents or children and the love you have for art and the love you have for beauty and all of it, it's all coming from the same source. So you you lose a particular love, but you're not, losing love itself mm, i love that and it goes to the that right at the beginning we sp- you spoke a bit about the giving your ancestors back the love you know that sort of beyond space and time concept reminds you when my father died over 20 years ago and my youngest daughter was four at the time and when we heard you know the, the grief that you you know the crying and the absolute brokenness that you experienced and i was sitting on the end of my bed sobbing and my youngest daughter came up and sat next to me and held my hand and just started crying with me (laughs) and after a few minutes she sort of poked me in the side and she said mommy what are we crying for (laughs) and I thought that was as we were speaking it reminded me of that and whenever I think of my dad that story is what I immediately told my mom and the rest of my siblings and it's the story that just carried us through you know my daughter's now 20 nearly 25 and we still talk about that and it's helped us to keep the love going. It was just so simple, but so beautiful. And the joy and the laughter in the same moment and the continuity of that love. And it's all these years later, that's what we often think about when we think about my dad. Oh and that, my just that, that, because she could remember a little bit of him. So it's just sort of when you spoke about that, it made me think of that story. You know, that story in turn made me think of one of the stories that I, I told in Bittersweet, which is one of my favorites by a young woman who was talking about when her grandfather died and going to, to his funeral and how it, at that funeral, it was, it, it was her father's father who had died and it was the first time she had ever seen her father crying. Mm-hmm. And it happened when there was a barbershop chorus who sang a song in tribute to her grandfather and the tears were streaming down her father's face. And she said, she talked about how much love there was in the room at that moment. And, and mm. she, she said there was a union between souls. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And union between souls, that empathy. That's what that's exactly what my daughter's little question was. It was that exactly. union between souls, that empathy that just has kept has helped us to manage that grief and move exactly. forward as opposed to you don't put it behind you, it's always with you, but it it, it gave it a precious moment. Exactly. And uh, there's something about the fact that we're all in this together, you know, that Mm. we're all going to know that kind of grief one way or another, that is another form of this endless connection that we all have. 
It's so beautiful. That endless connection, deep, meaningful connection. I interviewed the, the, the professor at Harvard who runs the happiness study that's been going on for 84 years, 750 oh, yeah. families. And he said, he said the biggest thing that came out of that, all those stories, and it reminds you of what you're saying, is the fact that it's about relationships, relationship with yourself, relationship with others. And, you know, it's it, it's it's the same thing that we said in the beginning. It's universal, this connection, this love, this, and you're going to find that in the sorrow as well. Not, you don't have to just find that in the, in the happy moments. It's in the depths of the sorrow that you, you're going to see that or experience Absolutely. that. And we know this, we know this just from our simple and everyday lives. I, I don't exactly. mean like the, the grief part of our lives, but the, the ordinary trouble part of our lives. And, mm-hmm. and we know how, you know, the day that you decide to share with a new friend a trouble that you're going through, that's the day when you suddenly realize, oh, we've become close friends now. You know, or, or if a coworker suddenly opens up to you, now you know you're in a different dimension with that person. So we know this. We know that, yeah. that sorrow is a kind of bonding agent. We're just not allowed to say so. Exactly. And that's where there's this conflict that we you know, that I mentioned earlier on. So it's so good now that we are starting to talk about it more. And telling people it, it amazes me so much Susan how many people I have to I get so many questions and do a lot of Q&As on in the work that I do and so often it's like how do I avoid these feelings and I said that's not your goal you don't want to avoid them you want to embrace them and process them and then reconceptualize them and it's it's kind of it's just not what culture has been saying for as you said since the 19th century it started changing and we have to go back to that Absolutely. And as as we said, I do think that we're we're seeing the steps in that direction. Sure. So so that is good news. And and, and, and it's also worth saying I, we're we're not talking I, I well I don't want to speak for you but I don't think you're talking about, you know, wallowing. No, uh, not at all. Yeah. And and like people sometimes say to me like I'm, they say I'm afraid if I go into this place of bittersweetness, it's like I'll fall into a well and never come out. And so I do think it's important to distinguish between these two states. And one reader actually just wrote to me the other day and I thought put it so perfectly, which is to say, like in, in uh, distinguishing between bittersweetness and depression, that depression is a state of mind in which you feel totally isolated and disconnected from people around you. And with bittersweetness, it, bittersweetness binds. It's, a, That's amazing. it's the ultimate mm-hmm. form of connection. That's beautiful. So, it's the, so to stop, the, to, to distinguish between the wallowing and the sadness is I totally agree. You're not telling people to stay there, but unless you actually go there and don't try and get rid of it, we're told to get rid of things, get rid of that emotion's bad, get rid of it. That's not whatever we should ever be doing. We should go into that emotion to find the message and then learn how we can live with that and reconstruct that and find peace with that and then grow forward, as you say, progress forward as opposed to trying to eliminate. So this languaging of it's eliminate things. It's a symptom to eliminate the medical kind of biomedical model. I think has contributed a lot to people thinking, hey, I've got to, got to eliminate this. But no, you can keep it, but it's you, you learn to live with it in a different way so you can keep moving forward because you can't eliminate. And eliminate, you try and eliminate, you will wallow because it's an impossible thing to do. So people get so stuck. That's just my opinion. I don't know how you feel about that. <laughs> I completely agree. Completely agree with that. Well, Susan, this has been amazing and so interesting. And I feel like we've only touched the tip of the iceberg. And I had ba- pages in your book, Dog Year, to ask you and talk to you about. And it's 45 <laughs> minutes later and we've touched so little. So I'd love to definitely have you back again to take these, you know, to chat more about these concepts. And just before we go, what would your what would your pearl of wisdom for people in all the years of experience? How would you sort of sum up this bittersweet concept and Leave us with a pearl of wisdom. You said you spent ten years writing this book, and you've, you know, it's a it's a big deal, and you've got a beautiful, you you write really beautifully, and it's a beautiful message. What do Thank you so much. Parting pearl of wisdom. Ah, uh, gosh. I mean, I guess I'd say just to know that at the the very awareness that we live lives of deep joy as well as deep sorrow, and that we also live lives of impermanence. That's actually one of the greatest tools that we have, one of the greatest pathways that we have. We know that we know from studies of older people that older people tend to be more contented, less mm-hmm. angry, more forgiving, uh, greater connections with others. Mm-hmm. And and what we found out is that this is not like some magical property of of aging, but rather that 
older people tend to be more aware of how impermanent their lives are. So what researchers have found is that younger people who, for whatever reason, have that greater sense of impermanence also have those same psychological qualities of greater contentment and forgiving forgiveness and all the rest. So the mere awareness of impermanence and how precious every moment is, that's really what takes you to the state that I think we all most desire. Beautiful. The momentum, almost the momentum mori concept. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Susan, thank you so much for sharing your, your wisdom with us and for spending this time with myself and my listeners on this podcast. And I really look forward to connecting with you again. Oh my gosh. Thank you so, so much. I guess I should also say for listeners, if you're curious about more thoughts on this, I, I share them a lot on my newsletter, which you can find yeah. on my website or via my website, I should say. And yeah, thank you so, so much for having me. It's just been a deep pleasure to talk to you. Oh, and, and likewise, I feel the same. And we'll put all those links in the, in the show notes so people can find you and your great Perfect. Books. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter, where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.